0: From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that really matters. According to Amnesty International's 2018 review of human rights in the Middle East and North Africa, this is not a great time for human rights activists and defenders in the Middle East. That year saw an increased crackdown on civil society in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. Women human rights defenders were targeted. Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi was killed in a Saudi Arabian consulate, and Palestinian protesters were killed by Israeli forces in Gaza. 2019 saw massive protests in Iraq, Lebanon, and Iran. But the Middle East is comprised of 18 countries, and the freedoms enjoyed by the average citizen can vary wildly from country to country or even within the same nation. And of course, the situation differs greatly if that citizen happens to be a woman. Today, we're talking about human rights in the Middle East. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Shadi Mokhtari. Shadi is a professor here at the School of International Service. Her areas of expertise include human rights and women's rights in the Middle East and Muslim world, Middle East politics, and political Islam. She's the author of After Abu Ghraib, Exploring Human Rights in America and the Middle East. Shadi, thanks for joining Big World.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Shadi, just to set the big picture for us, if you will... What would you say broadly is the state of human rights in the Middle East today?
1: I think, as you foreshadowed in your introduction, we could probably say that uh, the state of human rights in the Middle East, um, human rights and political change, maybe more broadly, uh, is at once both extremely dire and in some ways very promising. You know, on the one hand, Syria Yemen um, and Libya, kind of mired in these brutal civil wars for years. uh, Particularly, you know, the the catastrophe that has been Syria. We have other parts of the region um, where the region's dictators appear to be at once, kind of, once again, firmly uh, in control, and they're doing this primarily by relying on ratcheted up repression, very high levels of repression. Um, And this is true, you know, in the Gulf, um, we could say the UAE, Saudi Arabia, where dissidents and rights activists are brutally targeted, um, even when abroad. as as you mentioned. This is true in Iran, where the government shut down the internet uh, to create kind of a blackout of coverage for its brutal crackdown on protests back in in November. And certainly it's true of Egypt um, after the 2013 coup to this day, where there are some 50,000 or possibly more political prisoners um, held by the Sisi government. And just a you know, an almost unprecedented state of repression certainly in for our contemporary times um in Egypt and much worse than the Mubarak era. All of this kind of represents the the dark turn of the Arab uprisings everywhere in the region uh except for in Tunisia. But on the other hand, there are increasingly signs of those underlying aspirations for rights and political change that kind of uh colored the first wave of uprisings, the the Green Movement in Iran, and also what was popularly known as the Arab Spring, the Arab uprisings of 2011, that those aspirations um, have not only not gone away, but that they are increasingly more pronounced. Mm -hmm. So we have seen these protests for political change, which really kind of started with Sudan in December of 2018 and Algeria February of 2000. 19, so a year ago. And then we saw protests emerge a a bit later in the year, last October in Iraq um, and, and Lebanon. And then we've had all these, you know, several waves of protests the last few years in Iran, the most recent two waves being in November, and then following the assassination of Asim Soleimani, and then uh, the plane crash uh, in January. Another final wave of, or of, um, most recent wave of protests in Iran. In Sudan, actually, the protest movement has now turned into a transition, of, into a political change. There's a transitional government in place, and everywhere except for Iran, um, there, you know, the protests are ongoing, mm-hmm. and their fate is, you know, yet to be determined, but there's a lot of persistence amongst the protesters, and certainly there is you know, widespread kind of the language of rights and political change are, are um, integral to, to these protests.
0: And you you coupled human rights and political change, and this is often linked in discussions about in the Middle East. And I think I'm curious about, so political change can mean change within an existing political system. It can also mean regime change, depending on the type of political system. Do you think that, and anytime you look at 18 nations, it's going to be hard to make a generalization, but is the reality that for human rights to improve in the Middle East, there must be a combination of political change in some countries and regime change or systematic change within other countries? How does that break down?
1: Um, I mean, this is a very, <laughs> there's a lot of layers right. to, to this question and answering this <laughs> It'd be question. be a whole episode. <laughs> and, and as you know, you know, there's a lot of... Variation from mm-hmm. country to country, but I think you know if you were to look at kind of what is the overarching sentiment of these protests, it is a sense that incremental reform is not has not gotten any us anywhere through these existing kind of structures of power through these governments that are seen as not only kind of corrupt in the sense that they are lining their pockets <laughs> um, but just morally bankrupt. And so there is a popular sense of we need to start from scratch in terms of our political structures and, and, and arrangements. It's it's a little bit deeper than reforms, although, I mean, I think I would just caveat that by saying if existing governments really came through with sincere, meaningful reforms, um, they they could be embraced by these populations, but nonetheless, you know, people don't believe that e- these governments are really that capable of of coming through with meaningful reform agendas, and so it is much more of a you know what could be considered a revolutionary mm-hmm. outlook of we really need to challenge these structures.
0: Shadi, I'd like to uh, kind of zoom in a little bit on women specifically, mm-hmm. and as you look at the day to day way of life in the Middle East and compare and contrast it with other countries in Asia or Europe or the Americas, kind of a broad question, but what's it like to be a woman in the Middle East? And how would one's experience as a woman vary among, say, Qatar or Iran or Israel in terms of general mobility and autonomy? What does that look like? For a woman living there now?
1: Okay. Well, again, it does vary from from country to country and region to region. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have more conservative societies in in the Gulf area in particular. Most places, there is legal discrimination against women, usually through the Family Code. And there are, you know, a whole set of social norms um, that give women, I hesitate to say second-class status, because it feeds so much into, you know, stereotypes of women um, in in the Middle East. But there is, you know, the second-class status, Uh, there is widespread kind of social and legal discrimination. But, (laughs) and there's a big but there, that is really in flux, and it has been in flux for, for many years. In Iran, you know, starting with the revolution itself in 1979, where women are politicized by Khomeini himself, you know, saying, come out into the streets and depose the Shah. And then once, you know, (laughs) that objective has been reached, and we have this revolutionary government, Khomeini saying, okay, now go back into the home where your proper place is, and then all sorts of, you know, discriminatory laws are, are put into place um, that really impact women's lives when it comes to divorce and you know, child custody. But the social reality is very different. From, you know, there's this huge gap and if Iran in particular is a great example of this where women are present in every realm of society. You know, they are political actors in in many respects, <laughs> and part of that is participating in these protest movements once they step into these public spaces where they had, you know, previously not really been allowed or, you know, the, it was not considered their space, once they step into those public spaces, into the terrier squares of, of the region, you know, they're not going back. And their interactions, you know, with men within their society, with their parents, I mean, really become transformed. They they become political actors, you know, I mean, they, they their status in society is significantly changed. <music>
0: Shadi, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest, get to wave a wand and change the world. Specifically, what five policies would you institute to help Middle East protest movements achieve their aspirations?
1: First and foremost, I would put any and all pressure on foreign and domestic actors that are fueling wars in Syria, Yemen, and Libya. Obviously, um, you know, these wars are causing tremendous human suffering. Um, Are needless um, and in many respects are being fueled by you know governments in the region um, and and supported to varying extents by governments outside whether it's Russia um, or the United States second I would stop strengthening uh, dictators in the region through arms sales um, and other business dealings and through kind of these diplomatic niceties um, where, you know, you meet with these leaders you know and photo ops and, and um, press conferences and what is being, you know, basically the message being sent out is all is well, you know, nothing to see here. Then, I mean, this is not necessarily... A policy but it would be you know what I would an appeal that I would make to the media and the rest of the world the green movement and again the 2001 uprisings as we as we you know, discuss really captured the attention of the world but the recent wave of protests I would argue are you know no less significant um, and they are getting considerably less attention and that attention can really matter Fourth, I would say foreign governments um, pursuing principled policies that support not just these protest movements but particularly Tunisia and Sudan. So Tunisia, you know, where we have had significant inroads towards rights and political change being upheld. I mean, a democracy for several years, even if we may want to say it's not fully consolidated, but a democratic experiment that is... Moving forward, Sudan, similarly, you know, there's a transitional government and the EU, other governments can play a significant role. And again, I hesitate because a lot of times when foreign actors are supporting, there's all sorts of strings attached and it's problematic. And so this is why I say principled policies, helping these transitions really kind of... Um, turn into models for democratic change in the region. Um, And last, seeing the Middle East, not through a lens of our interests, not through the lens of geopolitics, which is very dehumanizing as a recent commentary had, had uh, noted, but to see the the Middle East through the lens of you know the aspirations of its people um, and the rights. I mean, that you know this discourse of universal human rights is not something that you apply only to your own citizens, but you actually believe that every human being is entitled to certain rights. <laughs> um, and I mean, obviously, this has always been the conundrum of kind of Western foreign policy has been, you know rights and political participation for us. But when it comes to, you know, other societies, other governments, only second to our interests. So if we can get over that hump in some way, that would be very helpful.
0: That's great. Thank you.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Shari, as we look at the U.S.'s actions toward the Middle East, our efforts and outcomes vary widely and, and always have. There are no U.S. alliances in the Middle East that are simple or especially straightforward. How do U.S. actions affect protest movements in some countries?
1: I think to answer that, I think we should look at what kind of precedes these protest Mm -hmm. movements. Um, So, you know, there is the actual kind of U.S. policies and U.S. hegemony in the region. These, you know, what's think, charitably called alliances, right? Um, But you could also call patron-client relationships, right? Um, Where certain repressive regimes, um, dictatorships, you know, agree to uphold, by and large, U.S. interests, you know, in exchange for arms deals and, you know, very... um, beneficial economic uh, and and business trading, and sometimes aid, significant military aid in Egypt, for example. And in exchange, U.S. interests are thought to be upheld by these leaders. In addition to kind of the broader context of Western government's, you know, interventions in, in the politics of different countries in the region and how they've shaped outcomes in many respects, you know, I mean, not least of which Iran and with the 1953 coup against, you know, the only democratically elected prime minister, Mohammed Mossadegh. So that whole history creates a psychology, a psychology of if we are going to really have genuine political change, it's not going to come from us because we cannot overcome these international political structures. It has to come from these Western governments. So we have to appeal to the United States to be true to its... Rhetoric on human rights and and democracy rather than us being able to bypass that and just directly challenge our governments. And that has, over the last 10 years, been, I don't want to say altogether dislodged, but we have moved away from that psychology. That's a very positive development where people are saying, forget, you know, waiting on the US to become true to its asserted ideals. This is our fight. To to have. The other kind of dynamic that is interesting here has to do with governments throughout the region appropriating anti imperialist sentiment, appropriating people's resentment of precisely these Western policies, right? in a way that if you are in the opposition, you become labeled as someone who is promoting Western interests, and there is this binary created of either you're with us, the government, or you are with the West, right? Um, and so in the past, this was really difficult for activists to kind of maneuver. I mean, particularly in Iran, because of the anti-imperialist roots of, of the you know, revolutionary ideology, the dominant ideology in power, activists often had to just go to great lengths to distance themselves from that label of being western or being against, you know, the Iranian government or the nation. There's a fascinating statement put out by students from Amir Kabir University in in Iran following, you know, the the assassination of Soleimani and then the shooting down of of the Ukrainian airplane in Iran by the Iranian government. And they say, essentially, we are challenging the totality of our oppression. Um, We do not accept American imperialism as we've experienced it historically, but also, you know, what just happened with the Soleimani um, uh, assassination. But that is not reason for us to stay silent on the oppression of our own government. And I see this kind of playing out throughout the region, kind of this escaping the trappings of that binary.
0: There is a perception, and it may be born of some bias, but there's definitely a perception by some in the West that people in the Middle East have a cultural or religious resistance to human rights. And I'm curious if you would say that this perception is born of a type of Islamophobia, or is the perception a response to a specific brand of political Islam that has less to do with people who are not Muslim being Islamophobic and more to do with them responding to political Islam and not really understanding the difference? Where do you think that perception comes from? Is it coming from a place of bias or not? I mean, so
1: this is actually what I'm, you know, this is my current (laughs) research undertaking (laughs) is around this, you know, broader question of, um, so for Gears, you know, um, the running kind of assumption seems to be that, you know, people in the Middle East and kind of the global South more broadly have some kind of a resistance to, you know, the ideas encapsulated in the human rights framework, right? Kind of the... Yeah, the moral norms, um, the content of human rights. And so what I'm arguing in my current research is that actually there is much more resistance in the Middle East to how human rights is practiced around them. So, in, And I don't want to say every single human rights norm is broadly embraced by everyone in the region. Certainly not. But there are kind of these core principles and this kind of emancipatory ethos of the human rights project that really overlaps with these domestic, you know, the, the, the direction that these protest movements are going and, and the aspirations, popular aspirations, in many parts of the Middle East and North Africa. So it's not, I mean, this is kind of a very incomplete picture or perception that people in the region need to be taught the merits of human rights and socialized. And I think back to, you yeah, know I've been thinking about my, I lost my father last April, um, and I have spent a lot of time, you know, kind of thinking about his life and, he, since he was a teenager, sat and listened to BBC Persian almost every day that he could. And he would just seethe and he would just shake his head. I mean, he was a soft-spoken Persian, so he wasn't loud about it, but he was just, you know, he would cringe with every story of torture and imprisonment of dissidents and corruption that led to the impoverishment of the population in Iran, whether it was under the you know the time of the Shah, or whether it was during this forty-one year tenure of the Islamic Republic, and I would see that, and and I you know over twenty years of field work in different countries in the Middle East where I've you know traveled, and there's this one retort that I keep hearing, when I you know people ask me why are you here, and I say I do you know research on the politics of human rights and. As soon as I say, you know, the, I utter the expression human rights, mm-hmm. the response I get is what human rights? Human rights don't exist. Human rights are window dressing. It's all for show. And it's this kind of indictment of not what human, I mean, it's, they're not saying we don't want human rights. Mm-hmm. In a, in essence, they're saying We wish that human rights was real. The language of human rights is co-opted by the Americans. Post-9-11 era, (laughs) all these abuses, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, Muslims and and Arabs being subjected to such ill-treatment while it's done in the name of spreading democracy and freedom in the middle i mean this is absurd to people i mean their governments sign human rights treaties you know have human rights bodies that they create create their own ngos you know governmental non-governmental organizations all speaking of human rights to create this image you know of yeah we're on board but it is not at all meaningful And even NGOs and some of the human rights activists who operate in their societies kind of seem to be playing a certain game with human rights, um, where they have meetings and five-star hotels, there's trainings and there's conferences, but nothing changes. So it seems like everyone who's talking about human rights is doing so in a way that's very intentional. You know, disingenuous <laughs> and 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 corrupted. I mean, the the actual human rights framework is is corrupted for them.
0: They're profiting off the framework and not yes, actually delivering. Yes, I mean, and
1: it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. So, but it's not again. It's not the content. It's not what human rights promises. They actually, in many respects, wish that what the human rights project promised was true. Um, but it's the practice that's that's not principled for them.
0: Shadi, in closing, I'd like to pull back out to a broader global view of human rights and protest movements. Um, With that in mind, over the last decade, would you say that protest movements in the Middle East have had an international impact, whether it's inspiring other countries' protest movements or of changing practices toward these governments that are being protested against? And if so, what has that
1: impact been? This return to the streets, you know, these protest movements in the modern era seem to seems to have been inaugurated by first Iran, you know, to some extent in 2009 and the Green Movement. Um, But then really, I mean, the Arab uprisings, and they really captured the imagination of the world. And then we saw Occupy Wall Street, we saw protests in Tibet, I mean, there was just, there seemed to be a significant kind of global impact. A lot of what these protest movements are doing to the extent that they use the discourse or human rights activists are involved is you know there's this new generation that is ma- that is making human rights more meaningful whether it's the social movement activists or or a new generation of human rights activists themselves who are very connected to their communities who have very holistic understandings of human rights as a more political project, right, as, as, as something that you know we need to challenge underlying economic and political structures mm-hmm. to really get to human rights and being willing to do that. I mean, I'll say that in the last few years, there have been some very high-profile academic challenges to the human rights framework the human rights paradigm, I mean, one is called the end times of human rights. So a lot of them are, you know, forecasting the decline of the human rights era, that that it has passed, it's, it had a peak, it had a time where it was highly influential, but for a variety of reasons, that is now over, not just the Middle East, but a, a lot of the protest movements that we're seeing in the global south are transforming human rights and and what it means to be a human rights activist, and to, you know the form of human rights claims, in a way that is resurrecting the project. So for for many many years, you know the idea was, as we discussed earlier, that it's human rights that's going to save the Middle East, right? it was the savior kind of model of deploying human rights to save vulnerable women, to save religious minorities. Mm-hmm. Maybe with the new ways that human rights is being invoked and practiced and transformed in the region, it may just be that the Middle East and the broader global South will save human rights, you know, from Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. forecasts of its impending decline. I mean, by essentially by making it something that is really much more meaningful than it has been in practice, particularly as experienced by the people of, of the Middle East.
0: That is a very positive note to end on. Shadi Mokhtari, thank you for joining Big World. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you leave us a good rating or a review, it'll be as great as an extra week of peak cherry blossoms. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time.